If your college or high school literature courses covered Southern Gothic at all, it was probably just a quick unit that included maybe Flannery O'Connor, William Faulkner, possibly Carson McCullers, throw in a little Harper Lee. It's a genre that's usually described as a Southern writer's preoccupation with the grotesque, the weird, and the other South. And yet, even the stories that examine the South's faults and flaws often have a way of perpetuating this moonlight and magnolia stereotype. And almost all of the writers that get categorized as quote-unquote Southern Gothic are usually looking at the South through a white lens, even when they do take on race. But the song you're hearing right now, Magnolia Blues, is one that offers a fresh take on old tropes. Adia Victoria's new album, A Southern Gothic, may be the best album to emerge from the South in several years. Adia grew up in South Carolina. She's a poet, a blues and Americana artist, and also the host of the brilliant podcast Call and Response, which examines and deconstructs American music through a Southern lens. Each song on this album feels like a short story that you'd find in the Southern Gothic canon. There's the story of a preacher's daughter, story of a great flood, and then stories about the feeling that you get when you're away from home. But Adia imbues the old forms with fresh energy. She weaves in the perspective of a young black woman growing up in an overwhelmingly white space, and the impact that that has on characters like her, as well as the way it affects the South as a whole. Today on The Reckon Interview, Adia Victoria and I go deep into her art and her thoughts on the American South. This was one of the best conversations I've had so far on the show, and the way that Adia describes the South toward the end of this episode may just stop you in your tracks. Her third record is one that will sit with you for a long time if you listen to it. So let's dive in to this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Adia Victoria, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Hi there, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I want to start talking about the uh, album title because I know you're a poet as well as a songwriter and very precise with your language. So it feels deliberate that you name this album a Southern Gothic and not just Southern Gothic. So what were you hoping to convey with the inclusion of that article? I wanted to specify a little bit, you know, I think with that genre, Southern Gothic, when you say it, people have these preconceived notions already, you know, you think of ghosts and hanging Spanish moss and back roads and dilapidated churches and whatnot. So what I wanted to do was, you know, certainly create under that umbrella, but also add a little specificity to that Southern Gothic drama, because oftentimes when we talk about a Southern Gothic, we're usually thinking about the white perspective of it. A lot of the white creators uh, who are, you think of Flannery O'Connor, William Faulkner, Eudora Welty. This album is a Southern Gothic from the point of view of a young black girl growing up in the deep South. And what would that mean for her? What would Gothic mean for her? And it's interesting because, you know, as I was preparing for this interview, I started Googling Southern Gothic. And you're right. Most of the authors that get associated with it are white. You don't see the names of Margaret Walker or Jasmine Ward or Randall Keenan. So what were you reading? What were you listening to while you were working on this album um, to inspire you to, to take on these tropes? I'd been reading a lot of literary criticism on Faulkner's work. I'd been reading a lot of the same on Flannery O'Connor's work. Eudora Welty. I was especially interested in a lot of nonfiction by Toni Morrison, What Moves the Margins, The Origins of the Other. A lot of work that dealt with psychoanalyzing the South, scratching beneath the South's surface, the way that it uses location as an explanation. I've been reading a lot about, there's a book called The, the Sacred and the Profane by, I can never say his name, I think it's like Marcius Eliade, that deals with how a society comes up with what is considered sacred and also the flip side of that what is profane 
reading a lot of old evangelical sermons and, and gospels and basically trying to get inside the mind of the South. I also read The Mind of the South by W.J. Cash again and again. It's one of my favorites. And analyzing the South as an observer. Um, and so the way that these stories uh, on the album came to be was, you know, I didn't necessarily want to write so much about my own story. I wanted to kind of use my story as, a, as an invitation to tell other stories through and how we perceive things in the South, the surface of things, the appearances of things, the way we order, you know, and analyze our world. I wanted to use a Black girl's experience as a way to confront all of these issues and ideas and analysis on the South. And you started writing this while in Paris, is that right? Yeah, I started writing this record at the end of 2019. We just finished up our what would be the final tour um, before COVID. We'd been opening for Iron and Wine and Colexco in Europe, and the tour finished in Paris. And I've got a lot of great collaborators there. So we went to the studio and just started jamming as it is, improvising. And I actually had a collection of Eudora Welty short stories. And from that session, the, the song My Oh My uh, came to fruition. And that was when I knew, I was like, I think I'm on to something. So I went back home to Nashville, came back to Paris in January of 2020 for a month, continued to write and record, came back with about half of the album done. And then as soon as I got home about a week later, you know, the world kind of just went to pot. <laughs> you know, you've got some songs on here that seem to deal with that sense that a lot of us go through, I think at some point of, of wanting to escape the South, wanting to leave the South. Then once you're out, you know, wanting to come back home or feeling some sort of homesickness, whether it's Magnolia Blues or South of the Winter, Far From Dixie. You have lived in and out of the South, I guess, for most of your life. Is that something that you personally are, are dealing with? I know you're telling these stories through characters. Is that something you wrestle with? Yeah, you know, I think every Southerner, the best way I think to sum up our relationship to this place is it's unfinished business, you know? I feel like we've never been able to feel American par excellence because our story is so different from the common American story. You know, we've known defeat. We've known tragedy in a way that the rest of America hasn't. We've known basically what it's been like to be in complete opposition to what the American project claims to be about. So there's this sense of cognitive dissonance. And I think it's impossible to, to reach any sort of resolution with the South um, in, in that regard. And so, yeah, I have traveled outside of the South. I've lived, I've lived abroad. I've lived up North. I've, I've traveled, but I always feel when I leave the South, just how Southern I am. And I, I feel like I'm a Southerner first and an American second in a lot of ways. And it's just, I feel like the South will always be my muse because it is something that's never going to be, you know, summed up or finished, or there's no, there's no happy ending with uh, the Southern experience. I wouldn't want there to be. You mentioned, you know, that you've been reading Faulkner and some, some criticism about Faulkner. As I was listening to two of your songs, Magnolia Blues, where you're kind of subverting the moonlight and Magnolia's trope of the Old South through a modern narrator, but then also Deepwater Blues, where you're kind of taking on that modern trope of Black women saving the South and saving America, but you're doing it through a historical narrator. It kind of brings to mind the Faulkner quote about the past never being dead. It's not even past. Tell me about your decision to play around in time and space like that with these two songs. Yeah, there was actually a really great Faulkner quote that I, I'd come across. It was from one of uh, his unpublished manuscripts when he, and he spoke about just the efficacy of that myth of, of Moonlight and Magnolias and Mint Julep and, you know, how that ties into the, the, the Southerners need compulsion to explain themselves, to narrate, to tell stories. So I think that Faulkner was onto something quite interesting about the, the neurosis of the South, the original wound of the South, of its, of its psyche. And, you know, I think so much of his work 
explored that wound. And I think that's why it's, it's been so enduring is because that wound has never healed. It's something that's scratched on. And so, you know, going back to that famous quote, the South isn't, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. It's, you know, this record was a way for me to walk alongside history, to see the way that history has moved through me, continues to move through me, continues to inform and shape and, you know, give contour to so much of our life in the South. You know, it's that need to stick to tradition and, and be conservative, but at the same time, so much of that tradition is something that you're trying to move away from. It's shameful. So I feel like art has been one of the only safe ways for a lot of Southerners to even speak to that cognitive dissonance. And I wanted to do that on this record, you know, with Deepwater Blues. That was an homage to the Black women that have come before me, you know, that have had to clean up so many white men's messes, you know, either literally or politically with Stacey Abrams. Everyone's saying, oh, she's going to save America. It's like, no, she's trying to save herself. She's trying to survive you people. She's trying to survive you white people. And and so that's part of the Southern Gothic of, of, of turning, you know, my gaze, a black girl's gaze out and, and seeing what would be grotesque and white society around her and looking at the world around her and saying, no, I'm not the ghost. I'm not what haunts you. You are the uncanny. You are what haunts me. <laughs> and here's all the ways. I think the rest of the country has started to realize in recent years that the South's demons are also the country's demons. Southern artists have always kind of held up the mirror to the South in order to, to see the grotesqueness down here. And increasingly, you know, we're seeing people like yourself and the drive-by truckers and, and Jason Isbell being heralded as kind of American mirrors for culture that's going on beyond the South. Why do you think that Southern musicians are having a moment nationally in maybe a way that before they were kind of sequestered to the South. And now I feel like they are taking on more of a national audience. You know, it's interesting. I interviewed sociologist Tracy McMillan Cottom recently on my podcast call and response. And she was talking about whenever America deals with these white people call racial reckonings, you know, when the, when the ugliness becomes just too big to ignore, which is what happened last year with George Floyd, there seems to be this instinct to go southward to it seems that the South has these moments of, of resurgence where we want to be able to go back into that time of like innocence and simplicity that the, the South manufactures so well. And, you know, I think that that psychologically that does something for a lot of white people of saying, well, it's not so bad. Like the South, you know, they've overcome slavery and it's still this place of beauty. It, it's almost like this narcissistic instinct to, to deny, re repress and carry on and what the South does so well is we we manufacture the surface, we manufacture dreams. You know, I come to Nashville, Nashville is a place where white people come to make myths of themselves. And so I think this time it was different because there was a call to people, white folks in the Americana scene where it's like, don't sell nostalgia. You know, if you do sell nostalgia, there's going to be people willing to call you out on it in your community. And that's something that I've done continuously with the Americana communities. Like, you know, People, white folks have not earned that glass of sweet tea on the front porch. You've not earned, you know, that sense of relief in the South. You've not earned that yet. If you come down here to the South looking for art, looking to be persuaded or, or soothed, I'm going to give you truth. I'm going to give you a fistful of Southern dirt and the stories that are in that dirt. And so, you know, my hat, I, I, I take my hat off. I, I tip it to folks like Jason Isbell, like, you know, folks like drive-by truckers, you know, white folks, Brandy Carlisle that are starting to speak. But at the same time, it's like, it's a very low bar to pass to just speak the truth. So I, I can't, you know, I can't give you a big cookie, but I can say this is a good start. Keep going. Go get your white folks. Go get your people. Well, and on the other side of that, it seems like anytime we have these brief moments of 
progress like we, we had with George Floyd last summer. You also see a different group of white people turning to the South for, I guess, the resurgence of the backlash, you know, the, the Southern strategy with, with Nixon and what we're seeing right now with the backlash to critical race theory and, and so much of the progress that was made last year, we're starting to see that kind of take root in the South and states like Virginia and Alabama and, and Florida before spreading out to the rest of the country. Yeah, but you know, the thing is, is like, I really don't, I don't separate my whites, you know, there's something that my great grandmother said to me when I was a little girl, she was 93 years old, and she was from Little Rock, Arkansas. So she's born in 1903. So she's, she'd seen some things. And she said to me, little girl, know your whites, know who these people are, that have power over you. And so I just see the folks that are doing the blatant white lash uh, the, the critical race theory, brouhaha, the coming down and, and dis, you know, trying to dismantle election rights in Georgia and across the South. I see that as, a, as an extreme on a, on a trajectory. And on that same trajectory are the white people that whenever something terrible happens, they say, this isn't who we are. Or, you know, this, you know, that's not what America stands for. It's all the same sort of delusional thinking. It's all the same denial. It's all, it's all coming from the same place. It's just how raw do you want to be with it? Either you can deny it and say, this isn't who we are, or you say, hell yeah, this is who we are. But at the heart of it is still the refusal to look at truths of why you do what you do, what is driving your behavior, how does white supremacy feed you? And that's a conversation that I've not heard very many white people talk about even the the nice kind liberal white people i've not heard them explain really explicitly how white supremacy warms and fills their bellies when we see it even in the americana scene like you were talking about you know roots music you've been very direct about how the roots of roots music are are the african-american experience in in the south and yet you know the americana seen, whether it's being recognized by the Grammys or album sales or things like that, are overwhelmingly dominated by white artists. So what drew you to blues and Americana? Yeah, you know, blues music, that found me when I was 21. I was living in Atlanta. I was high school dropout. I was working at a telemarketing center. And my best friend, Jen, gave me an acoustic Washburn guitar. And she'd recently just introduced me to Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, Hank Williams. And I love the storytelling. I loved the, the humor and the wisdom uh, that these artists brought to their art. I love that they were able to render these universal experiences down to very specific uh, encounters that they had with other people, but also with the South and natural world around them. Uh, but the blues for me was something different. I think the blues was a, a revelation for me. I first heard Skip James after I'd gotten into the Black Keys and the White Stripes. I started doing research on them. Like, who are these guys? Like, how did they start making this music? And lo and behold, it looked like, you know, the truth was that they janked a lot of their stuff from dead Black folks. And they were rewarded monetarily and culturally very much so by that from the labor and the brilliance of Black Southern folk. And so it, for me, the blues was a, the first time that I felt located and spoken to as a Black Southerner, someone who was poor, someone who didn't meet their respectability tests and mandates of like polite society. You know, I'd grown up in a, a, a culturally white space in the church in a private school in South Carolina. And so I always felt gaslit about who I was. I felt erased. I felt that I had no true place other than what was given to me by white people. 
And so the blues just allowed me, allowed me to expand beyond those boundaries and allowed me to claim parts of my humanity that I had to shut down in order to survive. You know, finding someone like Victoria Spivey and then and Bessie Smith and then uh, Ma Rainey, like these were black women who told me like, you can expand in yourself, you can spread out and, and, and claim and own and revel in the parts of yourself that they told you were dirty or unacceptable or unchristian, like celebrate those parts. But that's, that's power, that's humanity. Um, so that's how I got into the blues. You know, I got into Americana listening to the Oh Brother Arthur soundtrack. From there, I found Gillian Welsh, who knocked me sideways, who continues to do so. And so that was my entry point into, you know, older standard uh, American music, Southern music. And you worked with T-Bone Burnett on, on this album, right? It's so weird because, you know, when I got to Nashville in 2010, I arrived here with my CD player and I was listening to Oh Brother Rock Bow when I got off the bus and my mom picked me up and I knew that I wanted to work with him. I love the way that he uh, could give sound to the South. You know, I listened, I listened to his music and I could see, you know, my front yard where I grew up in the mountains in South Carolina. I could see the Blue Ridge Mountains. I could smell the pine trees. I could feel the heat and the cicadas. And so working with someone like him, you know, I didn't know really what to expect, but he turned out to be someone that was just like a musical grandfather for me. Like he was, he didn't place himself above me. He wanted to learn from me as well. Um, so there was a lot of sharing of stories and perspectives. And the, one of the things that he said to me when I was kind of fighting with my label over this record, he's like, Adia, you don't need anybody's hand over your hand to tell your story. You don't need me to tell you how to tell your story. In fact, I would probably just fuck it up. And so he gave me the confidence that I needed to follow my gut, follow my instinct. And, you know, he showed me how to put dirt into songs and how to mix and layer songs so that, you know, you opened up worlds for, for the listener. And, and that's something that I will be eternally grateful towards T-Bone for. You grew up in South Carolina, you mentioned in that majority white spaces in the church. Uh, and then I believe at some point you left that Christian school, Seventh-day Seventh -day Advent school. And that was kind of when you got exposed to secular music? So I spent the first 11 years of my life in the Seventh-day Adventist church and then the school that was attached to it. And it's kind of like growing up in a cult. Everything was very much, you know, shut off and the outside world was considered dangerous. And, you know, you didn't want to deal too much with secular music and art and whatnot or people that weren't sanctioned by the church. My brothers actually left this, the church and the school a few years ahead of me. So they... They were able to listen to music like Outkast and 90s hip hop, Mob Deep and, 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 and stuff like that. So I would hear it, you know, through their room, like, oh, what, are, what are these sounds? And when I finally left the church, you know, I, I got into Nirvana and Miles Davis, Fiona Apple, Spice Girls. And uh, <laughs> it was the first time that I felt like people were talking to me because until then, all I had were like hymns and veggie tales and, you know, just singing like church propaganda. But you know, listening to uh, Hole in my room when I was in puberty, you know, that was, I, I felt like, oh my God, I feel like a human being. I feel like I'm not supposed to be some angel on earth. Like I could, I can just be human and dirty and, and still a girl. And yeah, it just opened up, it opened up myself to myself, those artists. What have you learned about, in addition to your experience, you know, growing up in, in that school, about the church as a tool of social control, as a form of social control in itself? Yeah, you know, I realized at a very young age that the adults around me, the people with authority were very afraid of something 
you know, and, and they, they try to cover that up by saying, this is about salvation. This is about, you know, the end of times. And it seemed like everyone in the church was, was hankering for the time when the world would end, you know, we were rushing towards the end of things when we would be safe. And so I started wondering what did their fears look like? I realized that so much of this control that they needed to exert over me was based on their own fears and that no one around me took me personally. I was just a vehicle to maintain this illusion of, of control. And with children, you know, you have to get in there quickly to exert that control, to, to shape their minds, to give them, you know, um, a framework, a moral framework of, of acceptable behavior. Don't step outside of this bounds or you'll burn in hell for a thousand years. You'll never see your family again. They'll go to heaven and you'll be left on earth. So it was this threat. It was always this gun to, you know, my head of be good or else. There's always that or else after everything that adults told me. And so I wanted to write this story uh, in the song whole world knows is a group that is that that puts such a premium on belonging. What would be what would be the personification of blaspheming that belonging, those rules? And it's like, okay, here's this girl, her father's a preacher, and yet she's in a car shooting heroin on Sunday morning in her daddy's car. She's someone who her family cannot coerce, cannot bend or break into control. So then what do they do? Well, you try and silence it. You try and keep it quiet. You try and deny and evade and, you know, pretend it's not happening because you can't face the truth. So I wanted this girl to stand for an ugly, inconvenient truth that was put in the face of, of these people. And what, what does fear do when it has to face uh, truth? It lies and evades and and that's why she's, you know, I wanted to tell that story, not from her perspective, but someone looking in at her, because oftentimes so much of our reality in the South, how we experience it, it's not how we feel, it's how other people respond to us. So I just wanted to put, you know, have that girl be a spoiler to, to the manufactured surface of Southern society, which is how I often felt growing up. It's how a lot of my girlfriends felt growing up, uh, a lot of young girls that I knew, my friends, um, so that, that story is not just mine. That story is for a lot of girls who have felt that their very existence, their very flesh was blasphemous. It was a very ugly truth for Southern society. What do you think it would have meant to you to be able to hear a song like that, you know, when you were that age? I would have felt validated. I would have felt vindicated. You know, I remember when I saw a clip of Fiona Apple's famous 1997 acceptance speech when she said, this world is bullshit. And, you know, she implored anyone listening to, like Maya Angelou told her, go with yourself, you know, you're enough. I remember that that changed the game for me, that somebody with power, with an audience, with a stage and a platform called out the whole game. You know, it was watching her do that as a teenage girl was like watching the curtain come down of, of Oz and seeing behind. It's like, surely she knows, you know, the way this culture is manufactured. Surely she has some sort of uh, authority to say, this is bullshit. You know, someone that has been rewarded by the system is calling it out. So I found freedom. That was like a personal dare to me that, you know, Fiona Apple issued out to me that saying like, nothing that they tell you means anything. The only power it has is the power that you give it by believing in it and keeping it going. But if you just go with yourself, if you decide that you're enough, then all the people that claim to be powerful and celebrities, they have no power. It's all a big game of make-believe that we're playing. And so that's what I hope, you know, any young kid that would hear my music, the whole world knows that they get from it, that they get that, that feeling in their gut that the adults aren't quite what they say they are. I hope that they 
that pushes them to say, you're right, keep asking questions, keep poking. You know, I remember when I was in fifth grade in Bible class and we were talking about death and Adventists, we don't believe that when you die, you go to heaven. We believe that death is just a nap and then you wake up and, you know, the second coming is here. So I asked my, my Bible teacher, well, if that's the case, why don't we all just commit suicide? You know, like, why not just die and, and get to the good part? She kicked me out of the class because she couldn't answer the question. I was like, ah, okay. All right, cool. I was also that kid who was asking, asking those questions uh, in, in sixth and seventh grade. And I wonder, you know, I mean, I'm not Oprah. I don't want to do any sort of armchair psychology or anything like that. But, you know, my parents divorced when I was in sixth grade. I think your parents divorced around that same age. Is that right? I was in second grade. I was eight. You were eight. Okay. And, um, you know, that, I guess, ignited in me kind of two twin impulses. One, what you were talking about, you know, the adults are bullshit. You can't necessarily trust the adults, but also the desire to, I guess, try to see things from as many perspectives as possible so that I didn't hate my mom because of what my dad said. And I didn't hate my dad because of what my mom said. I tried to see it in both perspectives. Is there a way in which you think second grade is pretty young, but did that shape your, your art and your, your writing later on? Yeah. You know, I think as a young girl, my parents, especially my mother, because my father was in the military, my parent, my mom was very afraid of me because I would not fall in line. And because what she said to me seemed to have so little relevance, but you know, I had my own thing going by the time I was eight. I had my imagination. I had my magnolia tree. I had these worlds that I, I was creating that I'd rather live in than the one that had been created for me by adults. And so I think that that was a blessing for me in a way to, to see that, okay, to adults, like, this is what you want to do. That's fine. But that has nothing to do with me. Like I like creating, I like building things that I can play with. I like nature. I liked feeling powerless. I liked the big questions. Then I also realized too, that the most dangerous question as a kid that you could ask adults is why they hate, why, you know, they, they, they'd rather you ask how, you know, but why, why, why do you believe this? Why, if God loves us, would he threaten us? You know, and when you do that, you start noticing the, the inconsistencies in the story and you have to ask people why they believe what they believe. And once you get people to, you know, push them back against the wall, they get desperate. And then that's when they exert power to just pretty much just break you and shut you up. But I, I, I do think that that divorce happening, that crumbling of, you know, uh, a family, it kind of left me with, well, now what, if I'm no longer the standard, if I'm no longer good, then what else could I be? So it just, it opened up the chance for me to explore new ways of being uh, in this world. One of the things that you've done recently, um, very publicly asking why and, and challenging the status quo is an open letter you wrote to Spotify about their business model. You've also written on Twitter recently about, you know, you spent part of COVID lockdown working in an Amazon warehouse, I believe, clearly a, a working musician, you know, you've got three albums out, but, but also what is it that we tend to get wrong as audiences when we think of musicians, you know, we, we think, oh, you've got three albums out, you must be living in a life of luxury right now. Well, I think it's the same thing we, that we get wrong with anybody that we meet out in polite society. We all put so much energy into manufacturing these facades, these personalities, these personas, these social media, you know, um, accounts and brands of ourselves. And so we want so bad to believe in, in those lies. Those lies are comforting for us. You know, you want to believe that the person that's making this art that you're listening to that means so much to you is just this one thing. I feel like oftentimes with musicians, fans want to be in a cult, you know, it's like stand culture. Like you want to, you want to be taken 
away from yourself. You want to transcend reality. And, you know, that's a very lucrative thing that musicians are able to do. If you're able to get people to accept you as this cult figure, this symbol of something, they'll pay you a lot of money. People pay a lot of money to escape, you know, the ordinariness of their, their lives, the uncomfortable aspects of their lives. And, you know, the reason why I've always been very forthcoming about who I am outside of my arts is I don't want the responsibility of, of being that for people. I know what it costs people. And also I know that you can start believing that in, in that too. And I think that's why so many famous people lose their minds and end up self-destructing because you just get drafted off into the ether, you know? And I've always wanted to remain true to myself and my situation. Like, I, I don't want to lie to you because if I do that and convince you, then I'll start convincing myself. And then also, you know, the, the aspect of, of working in places like Amazon during the pandemic or with Spotify, that to me is just another way of like questioning the big lies. Like, how much money do you need? How many billions? How much is enough? Like, how much, um, when is enough? Why do you need to use people the way that you do to accumulate power? What is so scary about the fact of people being able to sustain themselves, you know, when do we get to rest? When do we get to say that's enough? Like, why are we on this rat race? Where are we running to? You know, it seems like insanity to me. It feels insane. It is insane the way that our culture has set us up in this game. And so I want to use whatever dinky platform or power I have to push people to, to ask questions, question me, question everything. You know, nothing is, is as it seems. What is it about the South that draws you back uh, as a source of specific? inspiration, you know, for an album like a Southern Gothic? I mean, it's the land that raised me. It's, it's the only land that, that sits where it does in my psyche. It's the only location that I respond to at a level deeper than reason and logic. It's, it's in my blood, it's in my bones. You know, I, I learned language sitting in the South and I learned to perceive and feel through the South. So I, I feel the South and it is the most intimate relationship that I have, but I believe that's true for anywhere people are from. And so anywhere that touches you that deeply and intimately is also a place that could potentially wound you and scar you. And the South has wounded me, you know, it has cut across my heart uh, in myriad ways, but that is the fuel for my imagination. That is because of that darkness and light, that beauty and pain and terror, all of these different all these dichotomies and experiences, it's, it makes it fertile ground for me to question and examine and, and, and react to. And I challenge anyone that listens to my art to start looking at where they're from and the stories that are told about their culture and the, and the dominant beliefs and don't take for granted what you believe just because you learned it when you were young. Like that's the stuff that you need to go head to head with. And that's where good art comes from. And I, I think that that's maybe a reason why a lot of our art seems to be lacking right now is because people are afraid of, of the answers they might get if they ask those kind of questions. And we've gotten so attuned to what people are comfortable with, with algorithms. So you can write, you know, like an equation, a song that's not going to piss anybody off or a song that's going to get played on this, on this Spotify playlist or that, or will reach these numbers. So we're all just learning how to better and more efficiently go blind to the world around us. Coming up after the break, Adia Victoria shares her definition of the South, as well as other artists to explore after you listen to A Southern Gothic. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you've wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, 
then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. And it's very easy, seemingly, to to fuel that narrative of kind of the Cracker Barrel South through through country music in particular, you know, through your music, through your show, you read, write, and sing about the South. So how would you define your personal South? What is, what is the South to you? The South is a question that does not have an answer. The South is, my South is a place that ignores all reason. It ignores and denies any attempt to be landscaped, to be, you know, shaped clean. It is a uncompromising wild, both in nature and and in its people. My South is a revealing um, agent. It's a truth serum. Um, My South is a land of of self-encounter, of self-discovery. And I believe that that has been true for every single person that has set foot here and was and people that were raised here is that you encounter so much about yourself outside of yourself. Um, yeah, myself is a, is a truth serum. And we talked a little bit about at the beginning of conversation about what you were reading and listening to as you were working on this album. Are there any artists or authors that you hope your listeners will check out after absorbing your album, you know, to further their explorations of themselves and of the South? So my brother in the blues, Trey Burt, he was born in Sacramento. He was raised out there, but his family uh, is from South Carolina and he's doing amazing, you know, acoustic blues uh, work. And his latest record is called You, Yeah, You. It's on Oh Boy Records. And I believe he was the last person that John Prine signed before he passed. He's, I met him at Newport Folk Festival last year, and he's just brilliant. I'm a huge fan of Joshua Sante, another blues brother based in Little Rock, Arkansas. He and I have collaborated uh, most recently on uh, my, rec- my video for a Southern Gothic. Uh, there's a, a, a Southern documentary maker, this uh, young sister, her name is Zaire Love. She just got her uh, master's in um, documentary making from University of Oxford. She is putting new sites to, to the South. Uh, she's based in Memphis right now. Caroline Randall Williams, she's a poet and essayist here based in Nashville. Professor Vanderbilt, one of my best friends, my poet sisters, blue sisters. She's Shona Armstrong. She sang with me on uh, You Was Born to Die. We recently sang together at the Ryman. You know, I just want to highlight so many Black folk who are still doing blues work uh, down here in the South, still exploring what the, the blues can do and must do in 2021. The blues is not asking us to recreate what it did 100 years ago. The blues still has work to do now you know, regardless if the Recording Academy understands that or recognizes it as such, you know. So I, I always just want to highlight people that are doing blues work down here in the South. And, and those are just a few. So if you're listening to this, if you like what I do, you'll love uh, the folks I just mentioned. Right now, things look a little up in the air, COVID-wise, uh, with new variants floating out there. Are you planning the tour to promote this record? Yeah, I'm actually going to be going out on the road with Jason Isbell uh, in January across the Southeast for a few weeks. Super excited about that. My band and I, we just made our Ryman debut last month opening for Jason. And uh, yeah, he's like, all right, let's take this show on the road. So that'll be our first taste back on the road since 2019. I'm, I'm very excited, nervous, anxious, 
vomiting. I'm feeling all the feels about that. Well, we wish you luck in that. Thank you again for the conversation. Hey, John, I appreciate it. And that's our show, folks. A big thanks to Adia Victoria for her time and for her wisdom. Her album, A Southern Gothic, is available for purchase wherever you get your music, so please go buy it and support her. Also subscribe to her show, Call and Response. I guarantee that if you like the Reckon interview, you'll love Call and Response. It's available on all the major podcast platforms. If you're liking this show, now's a good time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're wrapping up Season 5 soon, and your support can help us get renewed for another season. So please take a quick moment to help out if you can. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Cotrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. All of the music you heard in today's episode was from the album A Southern Gothic by Adia Victoria. Let me know who you'd like to hear on the show in 2022 by tweeting me at at John Hammontree. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me. Told the taxi man I'm trying to go Find the kind of fun that feels good till it don't